Hey, podcast fans, I've got to talk to you about drinking water. As an archaeologist, I've been on surveys where we had to drink three to five liters of water every day. That's 1.3 gallons, just to basically not die. Sometimes that water just doesn't hydrate you as quickly as you're using it. That's why we've partnered with Liquid IV. The small packets make it easy to take one with you to work, to work out, or on any adventure. I like the strawberry lemonade and lemon lime ones the best. Just put one stick of Liquid IV into 16 ounces of water and get hydrated two times faster than with just water alone. And now with our partnership, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code TAS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration Today using promo code TAS at liquidiv.com. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Podcast, episode 37. I'm Chris Webster. And I'm April Camp Whitaker. On today's show, we're going to talk about tribalism and nationalism. Let's dig a little deeper. All right. Welcome to the show, everyone. Welcome, April. How's it going? Oh, it's going all right. Well, good. Busy, but good. Yeah. And I wanted to mention before we get too far into this, just in case this sounds crazy, I want to get this on the recording. We've got some interesting audio issues uh, on this recording this afternoon. And just in case you guys can all hear this, there's there might be some some clicky sounds from April's side. And I've tried to remove some of that in post-production. But if I didn't, I apologize for that. Uh, we're still going to have a great show for you. And we are going to bring up all kinds of interesting things. And first, though, we're going to maybe try to... Um, uh, define some of this stuff and set the stage and then go from there. So April, I think I'm just going to throw it to you because you're the, you're the resident academic here in any ism. Uh, a serum archaeologist can't talk about isms. We just can't. All we talk about are shovel tests and, and transects and things like that. But isms are the, uh, are the domain of, of academic archaeologists, especially PhD students. It's all you do is talk oh. about isms. So, <laughs> so tell me about tribalism. What is tribalism? Oh man. Ah, uh, <laughs> you know, you came up with this idea, so I feared you had a beautiful condensed definition <laughs> and would be ready to go with that. Um, right. But so I can, I can give you my definition. No, no, yeah, let's hear your definition because then I'll tell you where I went when you first mentioned talking about tribalism. Right. Okay. So tribalism as i understand it and there are actual academic definitions of this but tribalism as i understand it and as i learned i guess when i was going through school is it's essentially the concept of a tribe for lack of a better word this is what it's based on is tribe but a tribe can be a number of things it can be your immediate family it can be your in in the context of modern times it can be your like i said your family the building you live in if it's an apartment building it could be your your block you know people have block parties they might consider that kind of their tribe or something like that it could be your compound if you live in idaho or montana something like that um but it's the people closest to you that, you know, when they say things like blood is thicker than water and all that other stuff, and, and you say family first, and, and even going all the way up to, you know, our president saying America first, that kind of thing. That is essentially tribalism, is putting your own closest 
closest people to you, however big that is, but your closest people to you first and, and concentrating on their needs and welfare and benefits before any others that are outside of your tribe, however you define that. So that's how I think of tribalism. I think that's a great definition. I immediately um, went to cultural evolution <laughs> and thinking yeah, about yeah. – so one of the things we talk about and those of you who've taken like an intro to archaeology or anthropology class, you know, we talk about this – the development of culture as a form of evolution as – and there's early ideas about how we move from like band organizations, so really small groups, maybe a couple of families to tribes, which are larger and you might have people you're related to, maybe a couple of people you're not – families you're not related to, but you're really – tightly knit group still working together, um, lots of interaction and codependence within that group. And then you move to chiefdoms and states, and these become much more social, politically complex. Um, you get development of inequality. And so it's these ideas that there are different types of societies, and we kind of move through them. And with each one, we potentially get more distance from the people around us in terms of beliefs and ideas. Um, you get specialization, you're more dispersed, you get greater complexity in terms of the governance because you have more people. Um, so that's where I went immediately when thinking about mm -hmm. tribalism. I was like, oh, okay, you know, this sort of evolution and where, how we still, right now, obviously we don't live in band societies or tribes, really. Um, we live in states level societies where we have a lot of complex socio-political organization. There's lots of social inequality, which we hear about endlessly on the news, of course. Um, we have <laughs> rulers and leaders, um, but we still have a couple of kind of levels of tribalism, right? I mean, we have mm -hmm. nations, which are sort of these giant tribes that we all belong to, but then, you know, sports groups, all these small tribes. So that's kind of where I started thinking about it. Well, I think you're totally right in bringing in cultural evolution because, uh, you know, some of the other, uh, one of the other definitions of tribalism that I found was, uh, it says may also refer to uh, in popular cultural terms to way of thinking or behaving in which people are loyal to their social groups. So you could even call millennials, as, as, as being part of a tribe, you can call Gen Xers, you know, you could call punk, punk enthusiasts. What do you call punk? <laughs> By demonstrating the fact that I'm almost 43. Well, those people <laughs> that follow these sorts of things, <laughs> you know, um, you could call them you know, when you're all together. Uh, that's part of your tribe. And, and you brought up sports teams. And that's one of my biggest examples of tribalism. We'll talk about that probably a lot more later. But that's the kind of thing where you know, you're, you're home, you're doing stuff, you're going to work, maybe you wear a jersey in support, maybe you wear a pin, maybe you have some poster up or something like that. But then when you go to the game, that's really where you're with your tribe and where everything really just kicks off and, and your whole attitude and everything shifts. I mean, we, we've seen that on uh, especially like European uh, soccer games where they just get so crazy with this sort of crowd mentality and this uh, tribalistic um, attitude. And by that, I just mean everybody conforming to the same, whatever the heck is going on and, and just going nuts with it. Now you don't have to go crazy with it. Tribalism can actually be a good thing too. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily have to be a negative thing in the way that I'm portraying it. But um, I think, uh, 
I think that's what our most common examples of that are that people can probably relate to that aside from just family, which is more of a biological tribalism. Because, you know, you look at family and we don't all really like all of our family members, but we do consider them as as part of our tribe. You know, if if it was X family member who I don't really like very much and X person who I don't really know very well and I had to choose between the two. Most people would choose the family member, and that is a form of, of I guess, biological tribalism, um, whereas, like we said, the other stuff is more social and then cultural tribalism. So, I don't know. What, what can you think are some, uh, some examples of tribalism that, I don't know, aside from what I mentioned, what, what, can, what can you think of, April, that are examples of tribalism in our day-to-day society that people might not think about? I mean, you've been through academia to a certain degree or, you know, in anthropology and archaeology, I think you could say that there are two tribes. There's the CRM tribe and then the academic tribe. Mm-hmm. I think that could be seen as a form of tribalism. You know, there's markers that we use to distinguish ourselves from each other. We use different codified languages sometimes um, and sets of terminology mm-hmm. that help differentiate your membership in these groups. There's formal membership. You know, we pay dues. As a graduate student, of course, I am a member of a very small tribe of other graduate students who are going through the same experience I am. Um, so I don't know. I think I think because we live in such such global and dispersed world now where we have all of these connections that aren't real connections, we kind of seek out these tribal memberships maybe. That that's a really good point. You know, we we seek uh, to be part of something. You know, to be part of it. We want to be part of a tribe. I mean, I think that goes back to evolution too, especially cultural evolution, where being part of a tribe, being part of a group, was just safer. It was safer physically because you know, if the lion is going to come attack twenty of you, it has a less of a chance of hitting you if there's more people there. <laughs> so, um, but it also has uh, better success just with everything else. Like you know, they they bring in a kill. You have you have. Uh, resources that you can share from a food standpoint, uh, like I said, protection, um, more, higher mate selection, um, things like that. And then, and then not only that, but once, once children are part of the equation, then, uh, you know, the tribe helps raise the children and, and that'll, that's all a big benefit. So we've been programmed from an evolutionary standpoint throughout, throughout human and pre-human history, because there's other, there's of course other groups of animals that, that, that exist in bands that exist in groups and things like that, which is their own sort of form of tribalism, really protection that they're getting from each other. And, uh, and it's just a, it's just a natural way of thinking. And, uh, I think it's just ballooned up in our, in our state level societies into this massive thing that can be, that can be really anything. And again, good or bad, you know, you can, you can argue that either way. I think, uh, I think one of the, um, one of the the biggest examples of tribalism that we all know about that crosses state and country boundaries is organized religion. You know, organized religion is founded around a common guiding principle, regardless of what the religion is of the thousands of them out there. They all have some sort of core guiding principles and you get more than one person that feels the same way, that thinks the same way. That's essentially tribalism, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I think that fits in. It's hard, you know, I think some of these ideas of 
tribes and tribalism is hard anthropologically in today's society because we often use, I think tribes, the idea of what a tribe is has changed. So, mm-hmm. you know, a tribe anthropologically and tr- kind of in, with a traditional anthropological focus is really, you know, a small, tightly interconnected group of people. But, you know, in today's society, we are members of these groups, you know, like a religious group where you, it's both, you have kind of your, your, your group that's really tightly and centrally located, like the actual congregation you belong to Mm -hmm. as an interdependent unit where you have shared beliefs and you work together on common goals and you support each other. And then you also have the larger kind of group that you are a member of Mm -hmm. um, that has these shared cultural and religious beliefs and perspectives. So I think it's really interesting to kind of think about that divide. Yeah, that is, that is interesting. I'm just trying to think, I'm trying to think of some other examples as well, because I think we're going to get into this a little more in the second segment and kind of talk about how it affects us. But I want to try to lay down all the different ways that we can see tribalism and then it's, it's, younger siblings, um, nationalism and all those other sort of isms that are related to large groups of people and, and try to see where that comes from. And I, and I mentioned a few, uh, I mean, you, you can really look at any group, any group that has an influence over the way that you think, like, let's say, uh, I mean, bring politics into it. Uh, I just saw somebody in Texas as we're recording, uh, is voting in their, uh, primary right now. And some people are posting that they voted and blah, blah, blah. And I saw somebody post, you know, make Texas blue again. <laughs> I think, I think it's going to be a, a hard sell to make Texas blue again. However, um, that's, that's a, that is a form of tribalism is, is trying to make your whole state and it's, and I guess it would probably alter some people's thinking, knowing that they live in a quote red state or blue state. Although everybody well knows that that is represented by, you know, a subset of the population and doesn't actually reflect the way the entire state feels about a certain political subject. However, when we say blue state or red state, people will look at that state and say, okay, so I know I've got you guys pegged. I know exactly how you feel. Like California is a blue state, but I'll tell you what, California is a blue state for like three cities and the rest of it is solidly red. (laughs) But most of the population lives in those three cities. So that's how that, you know, that's how that typically goes. The more large cities a a state has, the larger chance they're going to have, they're going to go blue or liberal, I guess, for, um, or Democrat for the, uh, for any sort of election. But because of tribalism, because of the way that we always like to put people into groups, even join groups and see groups, uh, we see all the people of that state as belonging to that one thing. I mean, I might look at a red state knowing full well there are liberals and Democrats in that state, but I'm going to look at that red state and go, oh, okay, you know, I've got you guys pegged. You guys are all, um, you guys are all conservatives and I know exactly how you think, which is entirely untrue. Right. So it kind of, in today's society, tribalism is letting us group and identify people and Mm-hmm. Um, figure out how we fit into the world in relationship to their group and beliefs because we know what their membership is and affiliation with that membership mm-hmm. allows us to create kind of a set of stereotypes almost Yeah, about how they will behave and react and think. 
in our notes here, we have something about uh, archaeological evidence of past tribalism. Can you think of anything in the archaeological record that we can find that would indicate uh, existence of tribalism? Yeah. No, you know, this was something I was really obviously thinking about since I put it in our show notes because I was trying to think about this and how do we... I mean, something that archaeologists are always looking for, right? We're trying to figure out social organization in past societies um, and looking mm-hmm. for it. Um, and so obviously being in the Southwest um, currently and having kind of a background in loosely in Southwestern archaeology, I started thinking about things like rock art. Um, and there's been a lot of discussion about um, how some of the rock art symbols might indicate and be clan or group indicators, and mm-hmm. mark things like boundaries or fields, be part of initiation rituals, and so be indicators of a membership in a group, a very specific subgroup, even within a larger society. Um, and so that's one way to start thinking about seeing it archaeologically is that, you know, we do have evidence that even in these past societies, people were finding ways of subdividing themselves into smaller groups. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think... I wonder things like pottery, where, you know, I, I have no idea. I actually haven't read or thought about this until this second. Um, but just, you know, thinking about different pottery designs, how much are those indicators? You know, I know in some regions, they appear to have it, they have evidence that certain people are making and producing groups of pottery or that even specific individuals, they've been able to kind of potentially identify certain people who are making pots. Um, and how mm-hmm. much some of these pottery and ownership of pots and manufacture and presentation of specific designs mm-hmm. becomes representational of these subgroups. Um, and I know people have done research on that. And uh, yeah, I'm just not going to mention it because I can't pull anyone up over the top of my head. So. <laughs> nice. Well, you know, in the last minute or two of this segment, uh, I was really thinking about the site that um, that you work on, Amache. And, you know, it was a Japanese internment camp in, in southeastern Colorado for our listeners that don't remember that episode. And, I mean, you had people pulled in there from from all over the western part of the United States, and if not further abroad, if I'm not mistaken, um, you know, all over the United States, and they're, they're put into these camps. And they sort of, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I remember you guys saying they organized themselves into groups based on um, not only family, of course, when they could, but just even just like location, you know, like you, you were finding archaeologically things that um, were tying people to a certain place. Like if I remember right, wasn't it like Los Angeles or something like that it was a big representation and some other things. Is that right? Or am I wrong on that? No, no, you're actually totally right. That's a great example that I did not think about. Um, but yeah, <laughs> no, people were coming from different urban or rural centers and we see, you know, there's a certain level of difference between people who are living in large urban population centers versus people who are living in rural population centers. And, you know, we still see that today in the way our society is organized. And then once mm-hmm. you're, everybody's moved to the, um, internment camps every or internment centers they kind of socially organize around that and we have some great oral histories from teenagers and kids where they were basically mm. rival gangs where it's like oh you're the rural wow. kids and we're the urban kids and there was like child level gang warfare between them um Why? you know where it's just there there are social differences between these two groups um yeah. and so they organized as children you know, they recognize hmm. them as kids, which is kind of interesting. 
Um, yeah. And I think some of it is their socioeconomic elements to that also. Um, but yeah, no, I think in a lot of aspects of our lives, we they're just these little components. Things like that are harder to see sometimes archaeologically. Mm-hmm. You know, how people how people choose to self-identify and then how they present that, um, mm-hmm. you know, how much, and how much, how do we interpret that as archeologists? I think that's part of our challenges. People are doing it, but can we see it and correctly interpret it? Right. That is the challenge. Yeah. Okay. Well, we are going to take our first break and in the meantime, you can join our tribe the Archaeology Podcast Network tribe, by going to our website and scroll up just a little bit and you should see a pop-up come up if you haven't been there before and you can get yourself added to our mailing list um, just this week, which will be expired by the time you probably hear this, uh, unless you hear it on the day it releases. I sent out a newsletter with a 50% discount code for our store. So that's the kind of stuff you can see uh, in our newsletter. Not only that, but upcoming things we have going. So join our tribe by getting our newsletter and uh, you can also go there to... This ad is going to tell you about arcpodnet.com forward slash members where you can officially join our tribe and uh, we'll send you some cool, fun swag for that as well. So back in a second. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders from ship to shore, air to ground. Cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 37. And we are talking about tribalism and nationalism we mentioned in the beginning of the show. But now, since we've kind of laid the groundwork here, we're going to go into uh, we're really going to hit nationalism hard and heavy in this uh, in this final segment of this particular topic. And uh, and hopefully we don't scare anybody or uh, radicalize anyone in the process. So let's go ahead and talk about that. So April, I started with my definition of tribalism. What, what is, what is your thoughts on nationalism as we kick this off? Okay. So nationalism is obviously an identity that is tied in with a nation. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's correlated to the development of nation states, especially Although it goes earlier to where you have, I think, state-level societies, you develop a sense of nationalism where it's correlated with membership to a larger group that's controlled by a centralized ruler or leadership and their defined boundaries um, that mark out what your territory is, your nation. So that's that's how I would describe nationalism, okay. where you are defined by spatial boundaries. Um, and a centralized leadership. So, I, you know, I think the Mayan, Maya had, well, I guess that's hard because they're, you know, like, that's not a great example. The Inca, <laughs> the Inca were a nation um, and had probably, a, you know, a sense of nationalism, even if that 
term didn't really come into use. Um, mm-hmm. You know, but they were defined by an area, uh, you know, set boundaries. They had a centralized leadership and expansionist tendencies where they're trying to gain more control of land mm-hmm. um, and bring it under the control of their nation, essentially. Yeah. And I, and I see I, I see these things as, um, you know, like like especially what you said, where uh, the particular state wants to, you know, gain more land, gain more resources. Usually this is all for not not usually like movies state where it's just like, you know, countries going out and sending nukes out and armies out and doing things like that just because they want to. They're usually doing this for resources like they've got too many people or they want to expand for whatever reason. It's usually resources. Sometimes those resources are just more land and they want to do that. So that's not very nice to the people around them uh, that maybe don't want to belong to part of that state. However, when you, when you know that tribalism and nationalism are going to be like just guaranteed facets of the human condition, you know, that's just like how we think that's how our minds are programmed. If that's in fact the case, I, I wonder your take on this. I'm not saying I agree or disagree with this, but I'm just thinking about it. Do you think that nationalism in its strictest sense of, uh, let's say, the British Empire or something, or even the Roman Empire, we can go back a little farther, and, you know, they would conquer other areas around them, and they conquered much of the, uh, the what we know as Europe now, and, and really kind of took that into the Roman Empire, and then, you know, that other little section became the British Empire, and then they basically went backwards and did the same damn thing. And in the meantime, do you think that was in the end maybe... I hate to say it, but better for some of these 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 cultures that were subsumed under this larger heading, because now they could be nationalistic for the larger thing and maybe not war with each other internally. You know, um, maybe you had these states that were that were fighting against each other for for land, but then they're both conquered by this mega state, and now they're just like, okay, well now we're part of this huge big thing. Let's deal with this now. Um, do you think that's a thing, or maybe is that too idealistic? <laughs> I don't, you know, I think it's, it's probably contextual. Um, mm-hmm. And if you asked, I mean, think about the EU now. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, essentially, the, it's a really similar concept where in theory, the EU is supposed to bring everyone together. Those nations still s- exist within it, but it's supposed to create this kind of overarching entity mm-hmm. that would remove some of the conflict between sub-nations and, you know, I, I don't know. I I bet in, to some degree it was better because it removed an element of conflict. But then you also still get people struggling against this larger entity, right? Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, even within the United States, you could argue that each state sometimes has almost a nationalist identity. I mean, think about Texas. Like, <laughs> I, I'm using Texas as an example <laughs> because I think it really is, you know, at one point it was its own country. Mm-hmm. And it really still has this Texan identity. Right. But, you know, even in my own household, I'm from Iowa and my husband is from Minnesota. And we all know that Minnesota is an inferior state. That's just, <laughs> it, we're really sorry for them. They are not as good as Iowans. Um, yeah. And it's, so, you know, even within the United States, we're all part of this under overlapping larger American identity. But each state is kind of a sub-nation. And I think... You know, some of these past societies, you know, like the Roman Empire, I think it sort of worked a little bit like that. Mm-hmm. You know, they controlled Britain, but you were still, they were still Britons. Right. 
it, it all comes down into levels. It's like nesting dolls, right? Because mm-hmm. like you said, yeah. you've got the United States. And when we're dealing with an equal power, let's say another country, then it's like us versus them, right? Oh, it's the United States. We're all one. But then the minute you get inside the United States, the biggest division I can think of is East versus West. I mean, anybody who's lived on both coasts knows that there's a little East-West rivalry. And I don't mean like gang rivalries, but I mean, just like straight up East and West, like West is best, you know, I mean, you always hear that. And, uh, because it is the best. I mean, let's, let's be honest. I mean, who wants to be on the East coast? It's crowded. Well, there's humidity. Nobody wants that in their lives. <laughs> the Midwest is the best. Right. Right. Cause it straddles both, uh, you know, no, it's terrible. Everybody wants to be in the West. Right. No. Okay. No. So, <laughs> so then so then when you break down, uh, you break down those and now you have the South, you have the Northeast, you have the Midwest, like you just said. You, I grew up in the Northwest, which is clearly the most cultured place to be in the country. And I mean, we invented <laughs> coffee, didn't we? I think we're pretty sure we invented coffee and trees and cheese. That's what we invented. So, um, And then uh, and then you've got California, which is kind of its own thing. But California, let's take California. You, you break California up into probably 40 different groups of people that see things and, 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 and all, you know, grouped together in different ways. And, uh, so, so no matter how big you want to make your, um, your division, then like you brought up the European union. I mean, that's a great example of a modern, almost Roman empire esque kind of thing, except the difference is they're all independently run. I mean, the European union is very similar to how the United States started, where we just put a government over the top of a bunch of local governments and then, you know, said, said, let's, let's help out. But if we were invaded by aliens tomorrow and they set up shop on the moon and said, listen, this is going to be a thing. I guarantee you the world would come together. And now, now our nation state is now the planet earth. And then if we had other alien societies within, you know, the local area, then our solar system would become the nation state, would become the nationalistic ideal. It's all craziness. It's just how we think. No, no, it's really true. And I think as an archaeologist, one of the things that is really interesting about nationalism is how it uses archaeology. Mm-hmm. Because... In order to have a nation, you need a shared past, a shared identity, and a shared experience. And I mean, if you think about Europe, it's this giant continent that has been subdivided into all of these different nations. And at times, national board boundaries were really fluid. I mean, you have the Austro-Hungarian Empire that then gets broken up, or you have uh, the USSR and Russia. And so in order to create nations you need a shared past and so you you can use archaeology and history to create the shared past and so i just find it interesting how much we get leveraged like the work that we do gets used to create these narratives these sort of master narratives of shared experience but also even as we're used to create that we challenge it Mm -hmm. um because you know, archaeology can also demonstrate that these are sort of meaningless. Yeah. You know, national identities are essentially, you know, they're amorphous and they're meaningless. And so we we both reinforce and challenge at the same time, which is one of the things I think mm-hmm. is really interesting about using this. And depending on where you are an archaeologist, it can be really problematic. 
Um, you know, I think of this in areas like the Middle East, where if you're an archaeologist who's doing work in Israel, you are part of, you know, an ongoing conflict about mm-hmm. whose whose past is the right past. Right. You know, who has ownership to those lands and those spaces. Um, and, you know, it's a very real conflict that has living living consequences. But, you know, the narrative that you produce as an archaeologist can be used in so many different ways mm-hmm. to support kind of these shared ideas. I mean, just, you know, or a little while ago, um, you know, I was looking through Facebook, as one does when one is procrastinating on running your <laughs> dissertation. Um, and, you know, there's new posts about, oh, a potential revolutionary warship that's washed up um, after the Nor'easter that just passed. And yeah, things like the Revolutionary War are part of the shared American nationalist identity, right? right? Like, we fought Britain to make this country, and that is our nationalist identity in part. And so then we want to find these indicators of that shared history because it reinforces that shared history. And that is so important to know, too, um, the, the fact that we do have a shared history. I mean, that is, uh, I think, something that we we constantly forget. Um, and, and that's, that's the greatest thing. The best thing about archeology, span like you said, is, is, is bringing all these things to light and showing us that, um, you know, maybe it doesn't matter that much. Maybe it's, uh, we do need to learn from, from the past. Um, in the last few minutes here, let's, I mean, we, we've, we've had some, some examples. Um, I, I generally see nationalism as if I had to put it on one side of the fence or the other, I generally see it as kind of a bad thing in the sense that, the smaller division, the division, the worse that it, the worse it's going to be for us. When you get all the way down to tribalism, I think that that really isolates people from uh, from helping other people, from from seeing other people as uh, as somebody that needs to be helped. You know what I mean? Um, we, you know, we always again it. it it goes back to coming down to resources. You know, we could only help our family because that was the only, that was the amount of brain power and money and resources that we had to deal with was just making sure our own family was okay. But we don't really live like that anymore. Some people do, and that's fine. Um, but a lot of us don't really live like that anymore. And we just need to get out of this, this tribalistic nationalistic mindset and get out of our own heads and get out of our own local space and just look and see, you know, we are all, one giant group of people. Um, that's why I'm just, just hoping for alien contact at some point, because I really think it would unite the world <laughs> if that happened, you know, because now it's us versus them. And in that case, nationalism kind of is a good thing. Not that we need to be fighting some other alien society. We should be friends with them too. However, I think it would unite us and make us realize that the boundaries between us are not really boundaries. They're just, they're the things that, that actually pull us together and that they should, they should do that. So I don't know who knows. I don't know if we've actually solved or talked about anything in this podcast today, <laughs> but it's a fun discussion to have. No, it really is. And I mean, I'm going to, okay, I'm going to argue for tribalism and nationalism yeah. just to have fun. So thinking about archaeology again and preservation, mm-hmm. a lot of preserving of the past has happened because people, like, you know, no one, certain giant monuments, like, you know, the Grand Canyon. Okay. It's a, it's an amazing wonder, but, and so everyone wants to preserve and protect that because everyone can see sort of a global value for some mm-hmm. archeological sites, but other places 
that are really important, they're not seen as important by everyone. You know, they're seen as important by a group of people who associate with that place or that shared experience, mm-hmm. right? And so those are the people then who are going to advocate um, to preserve, to protect, to, you know, um, just enhance, like if you live in a neighborhood, people who don't live in your neighborhood don't care that it's filled with pollution and garbage, but people who live in that neighborhood do. Right. And so having kind of tribal level belong membership can enact change at local levels that then have larger implications. That's an excellent point. Yeah. Especially for archaeology and preservation, where a lot of sites do seem really ephemeral. Mm -hmm. And are they really worthy of preserving if they just tell the story of like five people? But it's sort of the tiered level again that we're talking about, where it may be the story of one family, but that one family is actually representative of the experience of, you know, it's a farmstead. It's the ex- representative of the experience of thousands of families, but it's the descendants mm-hmm. of that family that have managed to get it preserved, uh, get it made into a heritage site. Um, so, you know, I think it's it's a cost-benefit analysis where at some levels it becomes deeply detrimental. Mm-hmm. and But at other levels, it can en- enact a lot of change and cooperation amongst people. Right. But yeah, no, it is very destructive too. That's a great point to end this on too, um, because bringing it back to bringing it back to archaeology, like you said, is really it's actually kind of profound when you think about it. Like you mentioned, historic preservation. Basically, it, I mean, how many times do we see something only ends up on the National Register of Historic Places because somebody put forth the application and really saw it through <laughs> to the end and really put together this thing? You have to have a solid application for this deal to get on the National Register of Historic Places, let alone any sort of local or state historic register, right? So, but what they're saying by doing that is I really care about this place. It's important to our local history, but more important than that, it's important to everybody. So you've got this almost tribalistic view of the history in your local area that says, this is really important. We need to preserve this. We need to protect this. And here's why Here's why it's important to everybody. And that, that opens it up beyond those boundaries. And I think that's, I think it's one thing we try to do as archaeologists. That's what you guys are trying to do with Amache and all your research is, is take this small thing that not very many people know about, but that was really important to a small subset of people and bring it to the world. And, and so we can learn from it. So we can learn this is, this is what happened here. And it's, it's an incredibly important um, job that we have to do that, to bring that information to everybody else and show everybody that uh, it's not just us. It's, it's everybody. We're all involved. We're all part of this. And this isn't like just happening to a small group of people. This is something the human people are doing to, <laughs> to other humans in all cases, whether we're talking about, you know, Amache or, um, you know, mining or whatever it is, you know, it's, it's important to all of us to learn from that. So anyway, that's a great point to end this on. And, uh, any, any final thoughts on that? No, I, I think that's a, I think that's a great point is that archeology span is about the human experience. That's right. And so we have the potential to both reinforce tribal idea, tribalism or nationalism, mm-hmm. but we can also break it down. There you go. Um, so there is our super optimistic, upbeat ending 
Um, because, you know, the nice. world is filled with dark things and we have to bring light to it. That's right. Burn all your flags and go see an archaeology site. So there we go. <laughs> That's the uh, moral of this story. All right. Well, thanks a lot, April. Um, this has been a great discussion. I like it when we just kind of have these chats about uh, high level concepts because those are those are, I think, the really fun ones. So um, but we do have some some other great interviews coming up for the uh, the archaeology show. So stay tuned and please comment on this wherever you heard this uh, this show. What are your levels of tribalism and nationalism that really concern you could be religion could be a sports team could be your state could be your region could be whatever could be your cohort of graduate students who knows what it is but who what are your what are your groups let let us let's talk about that in the show notes so not the show notes the comments all right well thanks a lot april and uh thanks everybody for joining us Thanks for listening to the Archaeology Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. You can provide feedback using the contact button on the right side of the website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeology. Or you can email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Please like and share the show wherever you saw it so more people can have a chance to listen and learn. Send us show suggestions and follow ArcPodNet on Twitter and Instagram. This show was produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network. Opinions are solely those of the hosts and guests of the show. However, the APN stands by their hosts. Special thanks to the band Sea Hero for letting us use their song, I Wish You'd Look. Check out their albums on Bandcamp at seahero.bandcamp.com. Check out our next episode in two weeks, and in the meantime, keep learning. Keep discovering new things and keep listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Have an awesome day. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Oh.